Yes, the Lord did not bless me with vocals to sing, but praise the Lord that the words we sing are not to man, but to God above. And as we glorify him in all that we do and say, it's a blessing that all of us are able to stand here and sing this morning, no matter what your ability may be. Um, I'm probably sure that I am probably have the lowest ability of anyone in here when it comes to singing. Well, I guess I inherited that from my mother. <laughs> but um, this morning as I, well, throughout the week as I prepared to deliver this sermon this morning, I, for the first time in the last two or three that I've done, that I really kind of struggle. Um, I guess the struggle was between me wanting to do my own will and what the Spirit was leading me to preach. Um, I had some things on my mind and in my heart, you could say, or, and we know our hearts are wicked above all things, that um, I just had something that I wanted and I kept having to go back and start over. So I hope you're able to follow with me this morning as I'm going to take us back through a brief history lesson. Uh, Pastor Ben's done that already with us one time um, this year, but I'm going to do it again this year. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. I'm going to speak through Second Ephesians verses 11 through 13 are the main two verses that um, I'm going to be speaking about this morning. Um, and the title of my sermon is The Reuniting of Believers. Reuniting of Believers. Um, I don't specifically have questions for you to write down as we normally do, um, but I have them kind of interspersed throughout what I'm going to say this morning. So if you'll bear with me, we'll get to some questions. Um, but I just want to kind of review a little bit in a short way what Paul was telling us, or telling the Ephesians, and, and through that is God's word as, as, we've, as we have it here before us today as he tells us to sing. Because the Ephesians were mostly Gentile believers. And as I look about this morning, I don't see any Jewish believers here, I don't think. I think we're all Gentile believers, except maybe when no. But anyway, um, chapter 1, um, Paul is speaking to these uh, believers in Ephesus, um, and he wants them to understand the depth and the awesomeness of their salvation. And as we go through some of those verses in chapter 1, in verse 4 he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And I don't know about you, but that gives me um, confidence, that gives me security, that gives me comfort that he chose me before the foundations of the world. That means even before the beginning of time. If you can fathom in your mind when there was a time when there was not time, um, God existed, and God had called us to be. That's just, it's so vast, it's so uh, beyond me, I cannot comprehend. Then he says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, we know we were born in sin through Adam, so the only righteousness that we have is the righteousness imputed to us through Jesus Christ. And it was that double imputation that our sinfulness was imputed to him and his righteousness to us. So when we say that we're righteous, it's not of our own righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. And, and, I, and that's security for me. I mean, that's comfort to me. In times of blessing, in times when things are going well, and when times are, are bad and not going so well. It's, it's a blessing that... He holds me in his hand. Then he says, 
in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So it was his purpose that we would be his, not only in the flesh, but in eternity. That he provided the propitiation, that, that he provided, he's the one that, that quelled the, the wrath of God. He took on the wrath of God in our stead, in our place. We deserved it. We don't want justice. Um, that's everybody that, that has a problem with a lot of what Paul speaks of here says, well, that's not fair. That's not justice. Well, you're right. I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want grace. And grace is a gift given to us through Jesus that we did not and do not deserve and never will. And then he goes on to say, according to the riches of his grace, and there it all is, grace, the gift that he's given us, he's lavished upon us. That means overwhelming the cup over, over fulls, it overfills, it runneth over, making known to the mystery of us his will. And that mystery is the last verse there. It says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, there was a time when there was neither Gentile nor Jew. When those um, ethnicities, when those um, descriptors did not exist. In the garden, when God first made man, first made woman, we were God's, they were God's people. They were, they were not, you could say, they weren't Gentiles, they weren't Jews, they were God's children, they were God's people. And through sin in the world, of course, things changed. And as we go through chapter 2, um, chapter 2 wants us to understand that, folks, we had nothing to do with it. That's what grace means. It's through Christ. It's his gift. It's all of God. If we're born in sin and we're dead because of our sin, as Pastor Ben has so eloquently preached before, a dead person can't do anything. And I don't just mean physically dead. I mean spiritually dead. A dead person doesn't do anything. It takes the Holy Spirit to, to give us rebirth, to quicken us to life. Um, man, that's, no man can pat himself on the back for his salvation. It's the grace of God. And as we went through chapter 2, it says in verse 1 there, dead in their trespasses and sins, there it is, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If you're not in Christ, that's where you are. You're dead. You're carrying on through the, through the passions of this world. I've been there, and I, and I know all of us has been there. Because before... Christ became our Lord and Savior. That's who you were, dead in your sins. And it says, but God, and those, those are probably my favorite two words of the whole Bible because there was nothing of me that was good. There was nothing of me that was worthy of salvation, but God in his rich mercy made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And we were raised up with him, meaning Jesus, and seated with him in the heavenly places. For Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. There it is, folks. That's not my words. Those are not my words. Those are the Lord's words, as delivered by Paul through the Holy Spirit. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if you want to... 
Um, if you want to take that a little bit further on your own time, you can go to James chapter 2, 14 through 26. James, um, he speaks there about, you know, good works does not save us, but because we're in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells us, good works will come from it. And if we don't have those good works, if we don't have that evidence to show that, then maybe we need to question our salvation. Maybe we need to question where we need to go back and do a self-check. If Are we really in Christ if we don't have those good works? And I think that's what James, a lot of people thought James and Paul were at odds when in fact they were in union together in speaking the gospel. They spoke the same gospel, the only gospel. And so now as a little bit of an intro there, I guess. Um, we're going to go back a little bit in time, just say just a few years. Um, we're going to go all the way back to um, Genesis, because I don't know about you, as I've read scripture, and a lot of times we've talked about Jews and Gentiles. And we, we all know, and we've all heard, and we've all read that the Jews are those chosen by God in the beginning, and the Gentiles are those who were not Jews. They were the rest of us. But in a way, do you still understand what a Gentile is and what a Jew is? Do we really have that distinction because we're Gentiles? Well, where did we come from? How did we get that distinction? Well, if we go back to Genesis, and Lord help me with my fumbling and bumbling, I will turn to the right pages. Genesis 2, so you've got to turn to the left a great bit. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every fruit of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's the consequence for Adam and for Eve in the Garden of Eden for being disobedient to God's command, to being prideful and being disobedient. The, the consequence was death. And we know that 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 is still today that's the consequence of sin because we still have death in the world um lord you know we still have we have people that are alive in the flesh but dead in the spirit you know paul talks a lot about um we need to take christians and they need to to stop supping off of milk and to and to start eating meat but we have a lot of folks that just need to start drinking milk a lot of folks need it in the bottle and at one time I was there, and I'm not all the way there yet, as Paul would say, that, that as we move through this life, that Christ, his Holy Spirit, will sanctify us. And what that word, fancy word, means is growing to be more like Christ every day of our lives. So there we have the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. And then in, in, in chapter 3, again, we could include here, but God. We go back to Ephesians, that, those two words, but God, because in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, well, in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, starting there, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, here it comes. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." The first announcement of our redemption. Redemption started here in the Old Testament. 
chapter 3, right after, immediately after the fall. That's, that's, that's good news. But how was it to be accomplished? He goes on with Adam there in verse 19. By the sweat of he, he pronounces still this consequence. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, and for you are dust, and dust you shall return. So man in his pridefulness, what, what caused Satan to fall from the heavens? His pride. He wanted to be God. And we know where Satan is today. We know that he was kicked out of heaven. But it says in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And there it is. It had to be a blood sacrifice. And so throughout the years in the Old Testament, it took a blood sacrifice. The people had to go every year. They had to go to the holy, to the high priest, and he had to make a sacrifice for them for their sins. Now, it wasn't a permanent thing. It wasn't a final thing. It wasn't a consummation of things because they had to continue to do it. You know, they, they had to continue to bring the goats and the sheep, and they had to continue to make these sacrifices. But then in the new covenant with Jesus Christ, he was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the lamb to be slain for those who were called by Jesus Christ to be his out of the world. So who are the Gentiles and who are the Jews? Um, in Romans 5, 12, it says, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. How do we know that? Because people died before the commandments were given by Moses. So we know sin was punished. We know sin was sin. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, and that's what we're speaking of, yet death reigned Adam to Moses. And that's what I was just mentioning. Got ahead of myself. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, Adam is our federal head. Adam's sin is our sin. And therefore, that's the reason we're born in sin. We're born dead. Spiritually dead. That's the reason that it's a big deal that Jesus was born of a virgin birth. For people that make light of that, for people that, that don't really think that's a big thing, that's the reason he had to be born of a virgin. Because he had to be born, Jesus, he had to come, he was without sin. The only way he could pay the price that you and I had to pay was he had to be sinless, he had to be perfect. And so he was born of a virgin. And then as we move on through in Genesis, we turn to chapters 4 um, through 6. And uh, now we start to see the effects of the fall, the downward fall of man, beginning with the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Remember that? Abel and Cain, you know, they both brought their sacrifices. And Abel's was accepted by God and Cain's was not. And so we have blood, we have murder that's in, entered the world through, through this sinfulness, through this fall of Adam, and that's the reason we have what we have today. And people wonder, um, things just seem to be 
you know, um, why is this so that we have all these people doing these evil things? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And until Christ comes again, until he consummates his kingdom, until he fulfills it to its completeness, we'll continue to have those things. Uh, sin will still be in this world. So, and then Genesis 8 through 10, we'll just kind of scroll, scroll on through, and I'll be done here with Genesis in a minute. It says, in Noah's descendants, we know he had three sons. He had Ham, um, Shem, and Japheth, not particularly in that order, but the way I just remembered them. <laughs> um, it says in chapter 9, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, that's one of um, Noah's sons, Ham, the father of, of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. So here we have, we have Ham who has, right after the flood, remember God, he, he, was, he looked down on the earth and he saw all this wickedness and so he brought the flood. He saved Adam, Adam, he saved Noah and his sons and their wives, there were eight of them, and of course the animals and such, that they would repopulate the world, the earth, after the flood. But right after that, here we go. It didn't wipe out sin though. It didn't cure the world of sin. For right after that, we see that, that Ham, he, um, he, he sins against his father. And when you ultimately sin, as, as King David said, against you and, you and you only have I sinned, meaning God in heaven first and foremost. So he sinned against God. And so in verse 26, we see um, what Noah, he says in verse 24, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that what his younger, youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall be on his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So there we have it. Abraham, whom the Jews, the, the Jewish population, the Israelites, were chosen through Abram, came from the family, came from the heritage of Shem. Okay? The Arabs in the Middle East, those particular nations came from the tribe, from the, from the lineage of Ham, who God placed this curse upon once he fled his sins. So we got to go back. We want to find out when all of this took place. So now we have Abraham. And as we, we go to Abraham... If we turn to um, chapter 11 in Genesis, remember and now after the, that's where the Gentile nations began after the flood and the earth was populated. And after a while in, verse 11, in chapter 11, it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So they turned from God, and they turned to themselves. So in verse 8, it says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they were called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. There the Gentile nations began. There we are, we have all these nations that speak different languages for different cultures and in sin. Because at this time, remember, 
Abram hasn't quite been, you know, he, his family, the, the promise, the covenant is coming. But the Gentiles, we're, we're going to be excluded from that. In chapter 12, where we get the call of Abram, God calls him. It says, now chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there we have it. Abram's called out. Was there anything special about Abram of why God chose Abram? Was he righteous in and of himself? He came from a pagan land, did he not? Pagan himself from the beginning. There was nothing special about Abraham, about Abram at this time. He was dead in sins, the same as anyone else. But God makes a covenant with Abram. God calls him out, and Abram is obedient to his, call, to his calling. And, and God told Abram that he would make him great, that his nation would be, that his people would be greater than the stars in the sky. And, and we know that Abram um, was disobedient. In chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, even though God had made a promise to him. Yet Abram, being a man and in sin, she, um, she, he and his wife, he allowed his wife, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now is that true? You see, sometimes we want our timing to be God's timing. And God does things sometimes to let us know that it's not of us, it's of him. Because even when she allowed Abram to go into her maidservant, Hagar, Abram was 86 years old. That's not natural, is it? <laughs> That's supernatural. That's of God. And so... He was disobedient, but God was faithful to fulfill his promise to Abram. And so we, we, we know that after that, that um, when he was 99 years old, when Abram was 99 years old, Sarai was pregnant with whom? Isaac. So you have Ismael and you have Isaac. And now the, uh, the Ismailites, that's where our Arab countries over in the Middle East, that's where they come from. And from Isaac, we have the Israelites. So there's where that division splits. He says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 16, Behold, you are pregnant. Now he's talking to Hagar here. And you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ismail because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now listen to his description of Ismail. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? Wild donkey of a man. I've been called that, I think, sometimes. His, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And it's been that to this day. And that's the reason there's not a peace treaty in the Middle East brokered by any president or any dignitaries that will ever work. The only one that's going to broker a peace treaty, and it's not going to be brokered, it's going to be his command, it's going to be his will, is Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 17, he tells Abraham, because Abraham, remember when he promised him all these, all these uh, descendants, 
as many as the stars in the heavens, and he changed his name to Abraham. In verse 4, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then in verse 10, skipping down, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male child, every male among you shall be circumcised. So there's the mark of the covenant of Abraham circumcision and then verse 15 as of Sarah your wife you shall not call her name Sarah but Sarah shall be her name I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her I will bless her and she shall become nations kings of peoples shall come from her then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old shall Sarah who is 90 years old how about that from 86 to 90 um, she, she was quite old herself. Oh, that Ismael might live before me or before you. So he's still thinking in the terms, he's still not being trusting in God in its completeness. He's still thinking it's got to be Ismael. Man, I'm 99 now. Man, I'll be, let's say I'm 40. <laughs> he says, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. There's the Jews. There's where the Jews came from, through Isaac. Through Abraham and Jacob. Talk about. Now, finally, let's turn to Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. I'm speaking or mainly pertaining to verses 11 through 13. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, having brought near by the blood of Christ, and he goes on and on for himself and describes and gives more detail of that. So here we are. Um, the Gentiles' nations, basically what he's saying is, they were on the outside looking in. And we can even go back to the temple. You know, the temple was made up of, it had many courts. And the first, the, the, the most outer court was the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as they could go into the temple. In fact, they had signs put up. You know, if a Gentile went any further, their, their punishment was death. They were put to death. And even the Romans, who they were under a vassal state under Rome at that time, even allowed this. They, they, they allowed this to happen. They, the Gentiles could not go any further. And then the, the next court in was the court of women. And they could go only so far. Sorry, women. They didn't have suffrage and all the, the suffrage. Not, anyway, we were a little bit before that. But, but anyway, they could only go so far. And then in the inner courts were where the Israelites, the, the, the Pharisees and all of those, that they could go. And then you even had the Holy of Holies, the very the innermost court, the, the innermost place where only the high priest could go in only once a year and where he made the high sacrifice every year. And so Paul is speaking that what he's saying is the Jews were near. They were able to go near in a physical sense 
and a spiritual sense, they were, go, they were the nearest to the Holy of Holies. The Gentiles were far off. They were on the outside. But what this is all about, what Paul is speaking to is the reuniting. Because remember, if we go all the way back, that was my point with Genesis. You may not have known that, and it may not have sounded like it. But my whole point there was in the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning, there was no separation of Christians, of believers, of God's people. We were all one people. But through sin, through Adam, by Adam, we're dead in sins. And so there we have the Gentile nations. Then God had a plan. See, God is not a God of confusion. He has a plan. God is a God that's in control. And man, that gives me comfort because he already had a provision for those to whom would believe, whom would he would call to be saved from the wrath of God to come upon those that were in disbelief, that would have hardened hearts. So he had a plan. But, number one, let's talk about the Gentile nations because that's you and I. And I want us to understand who we really are, or who we really were before we were in Christ. We were without, number one, we were without Christ. In fact, the Ephesians, the, the people there that he's writing this letter to, they worship goddesses. The main one, the um, Artemis or Diana, whichever way you want to call her in whatever language you're reading it. She was the goddess of fertility. See, they had a goddess for everything, for the crops to grow, for it to rain, for fertility. You name it, they, they had one. So they were polytheistic. They were not monotheistic. They were polytheistic. They had many gods. And we all know there's only one true God. So, so from the get-go, the Gentiles, they, 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 had, they were polytheistic. And their worship was very hedonistic, very sinful. If you go back and do any research on the goddess of Artemis and the Ephesians whom they, they worshipped, you'll see just how dreadfully uh, sinful they were as a nation. Second, we were without citizenship. Remember, God called the Jews and made them into a nation. He didn't make the Gentiles into a nation. He didn't call the Gentiles out. He called the Jews out. And through Abraham, those nations, those peoples were created, and it passed down through Isaac and Jacob. And then we know in Romans 9, chapter 9, it talks about Esau, Esau and Jacob and how Esau was the older and Jacob was the younger, but the promise was made to the younger. Amen, says Kelly. They were twins. <laughs> so they were not citizens. Remember that when the Israelites came out of captivity, remember when they were down in, in uh, Egypt and God sent Moses down to, to, to lead them out of captivity and they had the Passover and all that stuff? The Gentiles, that was, those were the Jews. Those were Israelites. We were not citizens of that group of people. And he promised them the, 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 the uh, land of Canaan, the promised land, remember, even Moses was forbidden to pass over into that promised land because of what? Sin. So we were not of his chosen people. We were not of the citizenship of, the, of Israel. Number three, we were without hope. The pagan traditions, that were they were just that. They were pagan. That means they were polytheistic. It means they worshipped other gods. And they were of no use. We know what they were. They were inanimate objects that did nothing. They were powerless. The only, the only God there is, the one and only, is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. All these other gods they worshipped were just carved wooden idols. 
different things of that nature. They, they couldn't speak. They couldn't do anything. If you remember my favorite passage in the whole Bible is the story of Elijah and how he ridiculed those, uh, those magicians and, and people of, of the king there and how he told them that, you know, if, you're, if your gods exist, have them come down and, 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 and start this fire, do all this, or maybe they're asleep, maybe they're doing this and that, but call them, call them, see what they would do. And then Elijah called on God Almighty to bring down the fire and burn up the sacrifice, and, and, and he did. But it wasn't of Elijah. It was of God. And then we were without covenants. God did not make covenants with us in the Old Testament. However, the New Testament, meaning the new covenant through Jesus Christ, the, the Gentiles were grafted in. We were grafted in to those whom to be saved. And then that's how you and I, that's how this reuniting has taken place. He grafted us in. It wasn't of us. We are sinful people. We're not worthy. We don't deserve one thing. The only thing that I do deserve is death, spiritual and physical death. That's what I deserve. There's nothing about me that's ever been righteous of my own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, Romans 1 18 through 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So no man can ever claim that he has excuse, that he, that he, is, that he shouldn't be judged because it says plainly that he is without excuse. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, dis to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what mankind, those outside the body of Christ, that's a description of them today. Are we, and we seem to be surprised sometimes at the things we see on, on our media outlets and the newspaper, whatever, we seem to be surprised. But it shouldn't be a surprise. This is who they are. Without Christ, that's who you are. You're evil. You're dark. You're sinful. You're a Satan. God is, Jesus is not in that gray area. You're either with him or you're not. It's not either or. So and I wrote, as I was thinking about this, religious history is not a history of man starting off with many gods and then narrowing them down to one, but rather it's a sad story of man knowing the truth about God and deliberately turning away from him. Mankind, beginning with Adam, beginning with even Satan, even before that, in his own deliberate way, became disobedient and dishonored God and tried to place himself upon the throne and replace God, and there is the fall of man. So until in your life you place God back upon the throne and you worship him as the only God, the only one that can save you, and through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his blood on the cross, washed away your sins. Until then, until you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you're lost. 
you're without salvation. Um, I want to speak, and I'll, I know we have communion this morning, so I'll start trying to wrap it up. But if you'll turn to John, book of John, chapter 5, well, let's start with chapter 3. You say we're going from 3 to 15, well, we'll skip a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, now he said, it starts out he was a man of the Pharisees. That means he was a learned man. He was taught. He was schooled. He knew the scripture inside and out. Obviously only the Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been written yet. But he knew the scriptures inside and out. He was one of the teachers of the scripture. He was a Pharisee. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, now I don't know why he came by night, but he did. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. But there's his answer right there. He should have stopped. If he just admitted that, if he just said that statement, and he said he knows that to be truth, then I don't know why he went on. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you've got to remember, in Ephesians Paul strictly says we're dead in our sins. A dead person can't do anything. And here Christ is explaining to Nicodemus that you have to be born again. You have to be quickened to life. We can't do that on our own. You and I don't have that ability. I can't save you and you can't save me. Now we're charged to preach the word. And through his word, the Holy Spirit will quicken you to life. Not me, not Ben, not Bill, or nor anyone else. And he goes on, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now here it goes, the Holy Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates, quickens whom it will. We do not know where it comes, where it goes. We know it comes from God Almighty, but it's of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus pretty much um, gives Nicodemus a lesson there in the rest of verses 9 through 15 when he says, um, Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? And he goes on to explain if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then we go down to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that whosoever are those whom the Holy Spirit has quickened, has given new life. If not, then there wouldn't be anyone that would go to hell then we would be universalist. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard teaching in a way because as a human, I think I'm good in some ways when in reality, there's nothing good about me. My heart is wicked above all things. I'm worse than dirty rags. And throughout my life, there's been times in my life where that wicked heart and that evilness before I was uh, turned around and given rebirth by the Spirit of God showed itself plentiful. 
Then if we turn to chapter 15, and I'll finish with this. Chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that the fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So he says, I did not choose you, I chose you. Now, he's speaking here to, 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 to this to the Jews here. You see, the Jews, the purpose of the Jewish nation, they were to be that light upon a hill. It was their designation to go and, and, and to do God's work to spread the word, but they were disobedient, as we know throughout the whole Old Testament, very disobedient to God. And so he grafted through Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross, he grafted the Gentiles in, and that will go to, this will be my final scripture, pardon me, Romans 11, and I promise it will. Um, starting in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And so there we have it. We've been grafted in. We are to be reunited as one people, not as separate we are all of Christ. I know through the fall and through the uh, back when we spoke in Genesis about the Tower of Babel and all that when God scattered people, that's where we had all these denominations and different beliefs and all take place. But the one, one place I tell you to go is go to God's Word and read it. If you want answers, here it is. Here it is. Not of me. Let's pray. Father, I pray for forgiveness. Father, as I stand here, uh, I'm, I'm fallible, Father. Um, I'm just a man, still not consummated totally in your righteousness, I'm still with a sin nature, but, Father, totally dependent upon your grace. Father, totally dependent upon your love, that through your sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that there my hope lies, that Jesus paid the penalty that I couldn't pay. Father, that I deserve justice and you gave me grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here that, that is not in your kingdom, Father, not part of your family, that needs to be grafted in, I pray your spirit to quicken them to life today. I pray that they would turn to your word, Father, that it would be a love story to their ears, that it would be something that they would long to hear, and long to just, just just dwell on and meditate upon. And so, Father, I, I pray that for those here that if they're not in Christ, that they will be after today. And, Father, I thank you for the worship with my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the Holy Spirit leading me with words to say, Father. 
Forgive me where I've stumbled and have misspoke. I thank you, Lord, for this occasion. I thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.